I'm delighted now to introduce our speaker, Fabian Moore, Associate Professor of French at UO and a 2020-2021 Oregon Humanities Center Research Fellow. Professor Moore's wide-ranging research and teaching interests include, among other things, prose poetry, the European Enlightenment and Counter-Enlightenment, the French and Haitian revolutions, the evolution of the novel, early European Romanticism, French cultural and literary history, translation, its theory, history, and practice, graphic narratives, and the blue humanities. A prolific scholar and translator, she is the author of numerous articles and book chapters, as well as the monograph, Prose Poems of the French Enlightenment, Delimiting Genre. Professor Moore's work in progress talk, part of her current book project, is titled The Formation of a Multicultural Mediterranean in Chateaubriand's and uh, Brian, uh, Byron's works. Welcome, Fabienne. It's great to have you here. Thank you, uh, Paul, for your kind introduction. And um, thank you so much to the Humanities Center and, and the staff um, for this opportunity to spend um, just a wonderful quarter at peace, uh, concentrating and, and moving forward in my research. Um, I'm so grateful to see everybody here uh, today on this Friday. So thank you for, for being here. Thank you for your presence and, and your support. Um, and I look forward to your questions uh, at the end of the, of the talk. So um, I will speak for about 40 minutes. Um, I will give a brief presentation of the book itself and then an introduction to my chapter. So I'll give you first some facts, the peoples, the dates, the maps, uh, in order to situate my argument. And then the three parts of my chapter uh, with four examples. And um, again, I look forward to your questions after the talk. Um, I'm going to share my screen right now to um, present the book and um, do tell me if you cannot see. Um, so. So the book is titled uh, Chateaubriand's Lost Paradises, a legacy in English and Hispanic literature. In the first chapter, I integrate Chateaubriand's biography within a history um, and the politics of colonialism. And as surprising as that might seem, actually French scholarship has been very reluctant to do that. And I can talk about this in the q and In chapter two, rival British Empire. This is about national languages competing in the literary and geopolitical field and how British Romantics rejected or appropriated Chateaubriand, for example, Charlotte Bronte. Chapter three on North America is about what happens when Chateaubriand's trope of the vanishing Amerindian meets the construction of an emerging nation. Chapter four is the object of my talk on multicultural Mediterranean. In chapter five, um, I cover Moorish Spain, which is an ambivalent lost paradise in European imagination. And the last chapter goes to Hispanic America and the direction of independence movements in the 19th century. So Catholic South America writes back in the sense that it creatively repurposes the French author's fiction. So who is François-René de Chateaubriand? Born in 1768, who lived 80 years until 1848. He is a canonical author in the genealogy of French and also European Romanticism with René and Atala, his most famous stories and the genius of Christianity, the book that made him famous overnight. He is a memorialist, the author of the Mémoire d'Outre-Tombe, weaving a personal history and French history in one of the most tumultuous moments of um, of history in the wake of the French Revolution. 
his political fortune and his fame went up with the rise of Napoleon. And um, five years later, it went down after he published an article critical of imperial despotism. And that caused him to be exiled outside of Paris. In short, his relationship to Napoleon was one of admiration, resistance, and rejection. After Napoleon's fall in 1815, his political ambition rose again until he resigned out of principle. But throughout the ebb and flow of his political career, he was widely read inside and outside France. To understand how the ongoing rivalry between the French and British empires play itself out in Europe, in the Mediterranean and in North and South America, it's helpful to turn to Chateaubriand because his writing of lost paradises served as a foil as well as a model. So if you wonder why on earth Fabienne has been obsessing about Chateaubriand for so long, um, it's not because I'm trying to redeem the French author, but it's because I'm pondering a problem that has not gone away and that I feel the generation who experienced the French Revolution, the terror, the rise and fall of Napoleon's first empire was uniquely positioned to debate how to conciliate liberty and equality. And you might tell me that we have long known that the universal claim of the Declaration of Rights was, was aspirational, that it left out from the outset women and people of color. But what I'm trying to understand is the articulation of liberty and equality as the impact of the French Revolution sent tidal waves across the globe. My hypothesis is that equality depends on one's definition of liberty, inclusive or exclusive. In this chapter in particular, I study Chateaubriand's and Byron's concept of liberty as they write the Mediterranean. Um, let me give you some dates and maps related to my chapter. This map traces Chateaubriand's journey from 1806-1807, as he will publish it in his Itinéraire in 1811. So you see um, here, starting from um, Italy, going down uh, to Greece, crossing, uh, going over to Constantinople, back to Smyrna, around Rhodes, um, going to Jerusalem, the goal of his journey through Jaffa, um, a stop in Egypt, Alexandria, um, back again close to Crete, and um, a short stop in Tunisia on the way back to um, Andalusia. Um, just a note here about this expression, outre-mer, um, and just a, a, a slide to show you that this expression, outre-mer, um, has so many layers. Outre-mer um, designated for a while um, the Christian states after the first crusade. So those were les états d'outre-mer. But then outre-mer uh, also is a color. It is um, the crushed lapis lazuli that became used um, to paint in particular um, the coat of the Virgin Mary just because it's such a precious stone. And so when you read Outre-mer, I sort of want you to have all those layers in mind, um, a Christian crusade, uh, an expensive color that comes from extracting um, from Afghanistan, the lapis lazuli, and then that religious undertone also of the precious color. But of course, today, when we say les départements d'outre-mer, that administrative of terminology has completely erased out of that background. And Chateaubriand uses Outre-mer in, in a very uh, loaded fashion, referring to this history. Now, this is a map of two years later when Byron took his grand tour in 1809. He became famous with the publication of Child Harold's Pilgrimage in 1812. He left England never to come back in 1816. He settled in Italy 
until 1823 when he took up the cause of Greek independence. He traveled to Greece, tried to raise an army to lead attacks against the Turks. And he died of a fever at the age of 36, unable to win any battles by becoming a posthumous hero. Now, he needs no introduction. Um, I want to superimpose here the maps of a very troubled historical period, starting with the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte and his campaign of Egypt of 1799, which is um, what is represented here, the crossing of the Mediterranean and the invasion of Egypt, the famous Battle of the Nile um, taking place here. This is 1812 um, with the red line that signals the reach of Napoleon's um, empire and that of his allies. So you can have a sense of that um, size. And then in 1824, the year of Byron's death, after um, Waterloo's defeat in 15, Napoleon's abdication, his death at St. Helena, France really shrinks. Uh, but the map and the coloring gives you a sense of the um, immensity of the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Finally, this map here um, is about the Crusades to bring up a third author from the 16th century, the Italian Toccato Tasso, whose epic poem Jerusalem Delivered narrates the First Crusade, and it is a key intertext for both writers. Let me pause now for a purely auditory experience. So the soundscape is one of my key concepts and evidence for polyphony. I hunt the text for soundscapes such as this one in Jerusalem written by Chateaubriand. L'orgue du religieux latin, les cymbales du prêtre abyssin, la voix du caloyer grec, la prière du solitaire arménien, l'espèce de plainte du moine copte frappe tour à tour ou tout à la fois votre oreille. Vous ne savez d'où partent ces concerts. Jerusalem is an ecumenical ensemble of voices and instruments in this sentence. The description does not evoke a competition or hierarchies, but concerts, suggesting musicality and symbolically agreement or accord. In early 8th, 19th century Europe, best-selling François-René de Chateaubriand and the Enfant Terrible of English Letters, Lord Byron, stood on opposite side of the political spectrum. Chateaubriand, a neutral royalist, Byron, a Whig. They also belonged to the rival British and French empires. However, as aristocratic travelers imbued with a notion of liberty that is about nobility, not about equality, they could simultaneously sing a multicultural Mediterranean and wish for imperial interference. The romantic imagination of Chateaubriand and Byron flourished at the contact of a multicultural Mediterranean, a cosmos bringing together heterogeneous North and South, West and East, Judeo-Christianity and Islam, classicism and modernity. 
in the most unfiltered moments in their first impressions, both authors enjoyed the unpredictable juxtaposition of cultures. They saw its vibrancy and its wealth. But when their erudition, their politics, and their paternalism screened the Mediterranean people and sites, they both experienced and narrated the Mediterranean as aristocratic liberals. By aristocratic liberal, I mean a man born of privilege with inherited nobility, who is a passionate believer and defender of liberty. The liberty acclaimed by the aristocratic liberal is not the same as the liberty that the French Revolution inscribed as a right alongside equality. The aristocrat liberal's liberty is noble. It fits only certain people, not because they're unfit to be free, but because they're allegedly not ready and need to be fitted for liberty, namely groomed, educated, governed, morally ennobled. The aristocratic liberal is paternalistic. Women, people of color and manual workers who are more or less beloved are not really ready for liberty, but in need of a pater, a father. The two contemporaries were actually aware of each other's travels, politics, publications, but they never crossed path. And rather than claims of precedence and influence, what is fascinating are the parallels between the liberal drives tied to their aristocratic understanding of liberty at the service of their respective nations. The writings of Chateaubriand and Byron spread forward in the 19th century a romantic ideal of liberty imbued with thoughts of dominance. And today's Europe has inherited this paradoxical ideology as its authority over the Mediterranean world determines the fate of thousands of free migrants. But perhaps poetic justice has prevailed. A breed on the verge of extinction, 19th century aristocrats looked to ruins for a mirror of their fate, the feeling of decadence overwhelming their writing. To the contrary, I believe today's migration of youngsters speaks of the future in the resilience to reach and repopulate the depopulated shores of Europe. My focus on liberal imperialism is meant to fold in Edouard Said's Orientalism, but contextualize it differently. The very first page of Orientalism in 78 refers to Chateaubriand and Flaubert as exemplifying Orientalist mindset, indifferent to local population and real people. Said castigates Chateaubriand as the worst prototypical Orientalist projecting his narcissistic self onto other cultures. While I'm not contesting the fact that Chateaubriand and Byron are orientalizing the people they represent, and the fact is now obvious, I seek a political meaning directly connected to the legacy of the French Revolution and its struggle to reconcile liberty and equality. My argument is that each author tried to interpret for their respective national community of readers what it ought to mean to be free. With Chateaubriand's prose and Byron's poetry, Francophone and Anglophone readers have two frames of reading. For Chateaubriand to be free was to wander like a pilgrim in lost paradises. For Byron to be free was to be a rebel with a cause. I want to bring into focus what kind of Mediterranean world they created for their readers. I interpret Chateaubriand as the producer of a panoramic Mediterranean. The analogy with the newly invented and contemporary technology of the panorama illuminates its innovative prose and descriptive strategy, and also the shortcomings of this power and technique of illusion. By contrast, Byron's poetry and experience drew a battlefield Mediterranean, narrated as an epic space-time of clashes and conflicts. There is a modernity in each singular vision, as I hope my work will show, 
But just as the nobility connects the two authors beyond their political divergence, what connects the Mediterranean is that it is a water grave. I borrowed the phrase water grave from Valéry Loichot's Water Graves, the Art of the Unritual in the Greater Caribbean, which calls attention to the unique character of losing life at sea and the absence of burial it entails. Byron coined the epithet uncoffined to tell of a human body sinking. The naval battles between French, British and Spanish fleet in the Napoleonic era saw thousands dying in the Mediterranean. To foreground a water grave Mediterranean, as I'm sure you've guessed, is to speak about its 21st century predicament, the cemetery of so many migrants. What I'm hoping to write is a missing chapter in a companion to Mediterranean history. Uh, Molly Green uh, concluded her chapter in 1798, the year of Bonaparte's Egyptian campaign. Um, Green considered the um, invasion of Egypt as the beginning of the end of the relative equilibrium between European and Ottoman Empire, and also between Northern and Southern shores of the Mediterranean. And Green concludes, quote, a comprehensive reckoning of the Napoleonic era in the Mediterranean is yet to be undertaken. And so indeed that early 19th century um, is missing. The next chapter of A Companion to Mediterranean History but now Ben Yuada uh, focuses on Mediterranean modernity. But the insight I take from this chapter on the 20th century um, is this battle between two notions of modernity, pluralistic cultural elitism or nationalism. So on the one hand, a modernity embracing cosmopolitanism and on, an other, on the other hand, the modernity of nationalizations, meaning the building of nation states. In this battle, um, Ben Yuyadas tell us, nationalism has, quote, the upper hand, and which is why there is a lingering nostalgia for the other kind of modernity, the one that embraces the multicultural. The fact that between this battle, nationalism has the upper end is obvious and evident in the fight of Byron for Greek independence or Greek nationalism, if you will, um, which Chateaubriand will take up after Byron's death. So this is why the question of Greek independence is so complex and so fraught, seen from the perspective of a modernity seeking nationalism, it's a liberation. Seen from the perspective of a modernity that seeks pluralism, is it a defeat? That paternalism turns out benevolent does not erase its condescendence towards Mediterranean subalterns, non-European Turks and Arabs on the one hand and all women on the other. Women are completely absent from Chateaubriand's travel narrative and Byron's poetry is peppered with misogynistic jabs at what he calls the blues, the blues stockings women with intellectual, political, and public pretension. Once again, poetic justice prevails. The sea is gendered feminine. The poetic justice of the fact that the sea is gendered feminine and that it holds sways over both Byron and Chateaubriand lives. And in the early 19th century as now, the Mediterranean is a water grave, I think, because it's thought of in terms of control and power, such as exclusive economic zone or um, shores exclusive or migrants. But if we grant the seas and oceans personhood, as is gradually happening in the 21st century, then the agency of the sea, in this case, the Mediterranean, speaks of an alternative modernity, peaceful cohabitation and exchanges, collective care, life-giving water, female agency. While a coincidence, the coloring and the naming of feminists as blue 
creates a remarkably relevant metonymy for the sea, La Grande Bleue, unbeknownst to our male authors. Let me introduce here the, the methodology and the concept of blue humanities um, very briefly. Blue humanities seek to rethink our relationship to the maritime world. And there is a hyper-conscious and a hyper-presence of the sea in both Byron and Chateaubriand. Um, Chateaubriand made the storm at sea an emblem of his life and post-revolutionary chaos. Um, he wrote mostly at sea while on his journey, and so one might wonder what is it like to um, write a first draft or take notes while sailing. Byron's swimming prowess um, was really an overcoming of his handicap. He had a clubbed foot and a conquest of freedom. On May 3rd, 1810, he swam across the Hellespont. And of course, the symbolism of this moment of uniting two continents and um, the freedom here of swimming is really interesting. And so I try in the chapter to pay particular attention to straits, right? Straits as connecting seas as opposed, as opposed to dividing uh, continents. Let me show you my uh, chapter structure. In the first part, the multicultural Mediterranean, I look for textual instances of soundscapes, fashion, architecture, um, where you can see multicultural epiphanies. And then I trace the slippage into a political critique of despotism. In part two, the panorama, the battlefield, and the Watergrave, respectively, are the three dominant sites I connect with the Mediterranean that is being written. I also identify the dominant filter with which each author experiences the Mediterranean, the Bible for Chateaubriand, Homer for Byron, and Tasso Jerusalem deliver for both of them. And the third part tackles the Greek question, Byron's dream of intervention to liberate Greece which cost him his life, and Chateaubriand's joining the cause for Greek independence after Byron's death. I would like to give you uh, four cameos, um, that is examples of challenging readings. This is about the Fustanella. Um, it's the name of this Albanian dress. Byron's admiration of the Ottoman world is captured by his purchase of the Albanian dress in 1809, memorialized here in the portrait by Thomas Philip. Alas, Roland Barthes never decoded the semiotics of this outfit. But let's ask what this self-fashioning mean. First, the origin is Albania, a multi-ethnic nation at the fringes of empire. Second, the status it conveys is of the elite. It was only worn, worn uh, by wealthy Albanians. And third, Byron wore it, quote, as a sartorial response to the Ottoman Empire, end of quote. Why? Um, Jennifer Scarce, in this really interesting article, explains that because it was Albanian, because Byron loved to wear it in Greece, it actually encoded defiance against the Ottoman Empire. And as a matter of fact, she concludes, quote, it was a flamboyant Albanian costume admired and worn by Byron that evolved into the national dress of Greece, end of quote. So where is the line here between orientalizing, cultural appropriation, and sartorial support for the cause of independence. I want to show you a, a second example. The question of the panorama. There is an explicit reference um, to the new technology of the panorama in the preface of Chateaubriand's Itinéraire. In fact, Chateaubriand reviewed the Panorama de Jérusalem painted by Pierre Prévost and exhibited in 1819. His review gives an extensive quotation from his own description of Jerusalem in the Itinéraire. 
And the main point of his review is that, quote, les deux tableaux semblent avoir été calqués l'un sur l'autre. So here you have a metaphor of um, a pictorial metaphor, les deux tableaux, and then a translation metaphor, calqué l'un sur l'autre. Calque is a tracing paper. So this makes clear that Chateaubriand approaches the panorama as a visual translation of his own description. Now, an ekphrasis is the poetic description of a work of art. And here we have a description that precedes the work of art, but which is then recited um, to describe the painting. And so I'm gesturing a circle because of this circularity, this mirror-like effect is even more magical when um, you realize that the Jerusalem panorama did not survive. And so it's only traces actually in Chateaubriand's description, which then takes the status of an original. And so the panoramic gaze um, is about distance and illusion, um, I, um, I argue. Charles Harold concludes with a memorable description uh, or rather apostrophe to the sea. And I just will read one stanza. Roll on, thou deep and dark blue ocean roll. 10,000 feet sweep over thee in vain. Man marks the earth with ruin. His control stops with a shore. Upon the watery plain, the wrecks are all thy deed. Nor doth remain a shadow of man's ravage, save his own when for a moment, like a drop of rain, he sinks into thy depth with bubbling groan, without a grave, unknelt, uncoffined, and unknown. Instead of mankind holding mastery of the seas, the sea have power over us. The stunning line without a grave, unknelt, uncoffined, and unknown, rings like an epitaph to the thousands lost at sea, over the centuries, deprived of a burial, a coffin, and the toll of the death knell. In the next two stanzas, the poet takes stock of man's technological hubris, his illusion of domination, and the vanity of his ships in the face of the sea's power. And I want to give you a final quote to illustrate the clash between liberalism and imperialism. Let me just remind you that Venice fell to Napoleon in 1797 and passed between France and Austria before being assigned to Austria in 1814. Thus Venice, if no stronger claim were thine, were all thy proud historic deeds forgot, thy choral memory of the bard divine, thy love of Tasso, should have cut the knot which ties thee to thy tyrants. The poet explicitly connects the memory of Tasso to Venice resistance against despotism, her tyrants being the Austrian empire and before that the French. But in the second half of the stanza, Byron shames all nations for the fate of Venice and singles out England in his accusation. And thy lot is shameful to the nations, most of all Albion. To thee, the ocean queen should not abandon ocean's children. In the fall of Venice, think of thine, despite thy watery wall. As ocean's queen, England has a special duty to care for ocean's children. And here, Venice, here, Greece. Byron's apostrophe to England is a call for intervention and a warning. The metaphor of the watery wall suggests that England is a vulnerable liquid fortress, a fluidity less protective and connective. So to conclude, or rather to give some food for our ruminations, the Mediterranean embodies freedom. Its waters, its ethnic, cultural, linguistic, religious diversity is its essence, its past, its present, and its future. It's only a water grave because it's been the site of control and exclusion. I read seascapes, fashion, architecture, and the polyphony of the Catholic 
church bells, and the Muslim call to prayers five times a day as evidence of the inscription of multiculturalism by Chateaubriand and Byron. In truth, it is a cacophony. You know, that moment before a concert when all instruments seek to be tuned in. Well, there is no ensemble without cacophony. Chateaubriand and Byron write the Mediterranean for their respective audiences as a plurality of cultures. Third, Chateaubriand's Mediterranean is like a panorama, giving the illusion of place. Byron's Mediterranean is a battlefield, speaking to the bloody reality of past and present warfare. The French author privileges the Bible as an intertext, the English poet Homer. Both claim the Italian Tasso and his epic of deliverance. Fourth, behind the poetics of multiculturalism, cosmopolitanism, there is the divided politics of liberal aristocracy. Their defense of liberties is aristocratic in nature, patriarchal. To liberate does not mean to emancipate since the liberal aristocrat does not pursue equality. And fifth, in the 30 years that followed the French Revolution, the early European Romantic generation struggled to square the twin principles of liberty and equality. In the case of Greek independence from Turkish rule, the doctrine of the right of intervention becomes a double-edged sword. It's about liberating a people, but their deliverance is about safeguarding a classic heritage for Byron and Christianity for Chateaubriand. Except that the plundering of art and artifact by the British and the French do tell another story. Thank you. Thanks so much, Fabienne. It's a really fascinating uh, topic and uh, presentation. Could you, um, yes, you've already done it. You've already released the screen. Um, uh, anyone who would like to ask Fabienne a question, please use the chat box now to enter it in and, I'll, and I will ask the questions. A couple of uh, questions did come through. Uh, while we were waiting for you, let's see where they are. Uh, the first was, um, is the you you alluded to this briefly in passing, but um, Gina Herman's asking you to elaborate. Is the watery grave concept one that you might end up connecting to migrant deaths in the sea today? Yes, thank you, Gina, for that question. Of course, um, of course, um, the um, what's going on in the Mediterranean, all the images and all the. Um, the fate of all the migrants, of course, is, is precisely why I want to bring it up. Um, and that's what I was trying to, to do also in, in the talk. Um, it speaks to today's situation um, as well as the past. Uh, so another question is about um, the materials that you've chosen to focus on, um, soundscapes, fashion, architecture. Would you say a little bit more about why those are the materials that you've chosen to, to examine? You know, I think as I go over uh, both Byron's poetry and Chateaubriand's prose, and I try to um, identify those moments where their erudition is not so much a filter, but it's more about their first impressions. Um, it turns out that those descriptions are mostly um, about the, for instance, um, architectural vision that they get as a first impression. For instance, for Chateaubriand, uh, the minarets and uh, the, um, the, the way the city of Constantinople appears. Um, the fashion is how each author actually singles out the way people are dressed to talk about that sort of um, multiplicity of cultures. Chateaubriand even talks in terms of counting hats and turbans. The hats and the turbans become the sort of synecdoche of the, um, of the, the, the people inhabiting all those spaces. So architecture, fashion, um, and the soundscape also, I think um, Said, you know, when Said um, 
talks about orientalizing the other, I think um, there is a bit of a covering of those moments that are not visual, that are auditory. And so I think the, um, the auditory part to me is, is interesting when it tries to be transcribed in the prose. I think that um, something else happens there. It might be brief, but I think the soundscapes, um, and that's that's something that we find in Chateaubriand as well as Byron, the, the sort of their attention to the sounds. So the, the next uh, comment comes from uh, Gina Saki, and it's it's more of a comment, I think, than a than a question. Gina explains, this is such an exciting project, so lush and rich and promising. Gina is struck by the bright parallel between the puzzle of reconciling liberty and equality then and now, as these two notions are poles of a spectrum which divides Democrats and Republicans in the current American political landscape. Also the role of the aristocratic liberal then and now as only fitting certain people who have been groomed, prepared for liberty. So perhaps you might reflect on uh, Gina's comment. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Gina. Of course, you know, my, my preoccupation is, is very much um, of the moment because I think that what, um, in the case of France, what has not been achieved is this sense of, of real equality. And so when I try to understand how is it that there is still such a difficulty um, to, to achieve that goal, it brings me back to then, well, do we really understand liberty uh, in the same manner? And I think that's that's what's not happening. And, and we take for granted, we are all free, of course, you know, we are lucky not to, uh, you know, not to be slaves. We, we have freedom, but we take it for granted. And I think the interpretation of freedom is actually a lot more complex than one, one um, takes, one believes. Um, and I think that that determines whether or not um, one is able to then grant real equality uh, or not discriminate, for instance. Um, and that, you know, that issue is, is very much uh, in a discussion also in France between the right and the left and very much divides even the left, right? So um, all those issues, whether it's multiculturalism, whether it's, you know, my, my scholarship right now in the United States, um, you know, how does that get received in France uh, is, is complicated because in fact, those are not, um, um, those are rubbing a certain kind of left in the context of France, in the context of um, secularism, in the context of the universal, um, it's, it's going another way. Gene uh, also points out that in, in the United States, on the, sort of Democrats are associated with the equality side and Republicans are associated with the liberty side, but the majority of the population seems to be on the liberty side and not on the equality side. Mm -hmm. So the, the, uh, the next question is from Julie Hessler uh, from the History Department. Julie says, you stress multiculturalism, but can you imagine either of them having the same emotional reaction to the Greek independence struggle if Greece were predominantly Muslim? Thank you, Julie. Thank you for, for being here for that question. Um, of course not. You know, that, that's why it's, it's fraught that it should, it's not a coincidence that it should be Greece. You know, it is Greece because Greece is the, le berceau, the cradle of, or cradle of, um, of humanity, of Europe, you know, it's Europe's birth there. So, it's very fraught. Yes, it's not a coincidence. It's because Greece represents for Byron um, that sort of classic heritage and for Chateaubriand, a Christian heritage. The next question is from Corey Browning. And Corey asks, I'm wondering if you've encountered figures from non-European parts of the Mediterranean who engage and respond to either Chateaubriand or Byron's vision of the Mediterranean. Corey is thinking here of someone like the Turkish author uh, Oran uh, Pamuk responding to the Orientalist visions by Flaubert and Nerval. Um, th thank you, Corey. That's a great question. Um, and I actually don't have the answer. I would love to, to find out. I would love to go digging into um, those, you know, wonderful novelists like Pamuk um, and try to see whether I do find a response. So it's um, something I would love to to find. I would love to understand 
that part. But um, as of now, you know, if anyone, you know, <laughs> in your reading of Pamuk somehow find a reference, um, that would be great. But I haven't, you know, I haven't had uh, the chance to do that. Uh, the next question is from Natalie Hester. A beautiful presentation, Fabian. Uh, it makes me curious about the other lost paradises that your book examines and the connections to overseas colonies in the Caribbean and the Americans. Could you give us a little preview? Yes, yeah, so after, you know, after Chateaubriand, well, the, the trip to North America precedes the trip to the Mediterranean. And so um, there, what I try to see is that when Chateaubriand arrives in North America, he is um, both enthralled by the wilderness, which is the word he uses, le désert, um, and completely um, troubled by what he observes as the, um, the disappearance of the, the Amerindians and the disappearance and the, the corruption. And so the lamentation about the disappearance of the Amerindians is really what gets um, picked up by um, a lot of um, sort of North American authors, but in different, in different directions. There are some, you know, for instance, the transcendentalists, uh, Emerson and Thoreau um, actually sort of really want to put this kind of um, representation far away. Whereas there are others, um, for instance, um, you have Jennifer, um, Jennifer um, Fenimore Cooper and uh, Timothy Flint, who in their own writing incorporate this trope of the vanishing Amerindian. Um, in South America, the reception is, is different because I think um, the Catholic heritage makes it more um, palatable, let's say. Uh, and at the same time, it's very interesting to see how, for instance, an author from Colombia, Jorge Isaacs, with um, a very popular novel, Maria, um, how he rewrites uh, the story of Atala. The, the protagonists are reading Atala, uh, but then the story is sort of rewritten in that national um, novel um, in ways that I found very interesting. So that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at uh, what does it mean that, for instance, um, Bolivar's mentor uh, is the one who translated Chateaubriand's Atala into Spanish. Uh, there is a, a very odd adaptation of Atala in South America that I'm looking at. Um, and it goes on, you know, sort of up until you know the 20th century, Carpentier's um, in his great book on the uh, El Siglo de la Luz has an amazing reading uh, with I think like a key to decode the genius of Christianity and René. So I'm particularly intrigued by this sort of um, this, those cross currents. Uh, so the next comment and question comes from Michael Stern. Uh, thanks, Fabienne. What a wonderful talk. So Michael thinks about how the Mediterranean Sea has also from ancient times been a nexus for empire and after the Renaissance, a nexus for the creation of the colonial archive itself with Greek and Roman civilization and Judeo-Christian religious traditions dominating a notion of European modernity. So Michael's question, how does this tension between a dual movement of military expansion and cultural expansion play against the notions of aristocratic liberty forwarded by Chateaubriand and Byron. Thank you, Michael. Um, that's a difficult question. The, yes, the duality, the military, the cultural, um, you know, it's it might be, I mean, one way to think about it is to think of, um, of the figure of Napoleon, right? So Napoleon is his nemesis in that period. Um, so he is the military figure. Mind you, he had um, literary ambitions because he tried to write an epic of Corsica that very few people know about. <laughs> um, and so, um, so when, when you read Chateaubriand's talking about Napoleon's um, on those, on those locations, it's this, mixture of, oh, you know, the French were, were there. Um, and then this sort of nostalgia, oh, you know, this is all we lost. Um, and so the, the, 
you know, the aristocracy in the sense is more, it's not so much that Napoleon himself didn't come from aristocratic stock. It's more about wanting to restore, I think, the, um, the status of France, uh, wanting, which, which is, you know, sort of an ongoing uh, project. You know, France always has the sense that it's, you know, it's been diminished um, and always seek to, um, to kind of restore that. So I kind of, I kind of see it there, um, but it's a, you know, I need to think about your question, Michael. I'm not sure I'm answering it properly right now. So this this may be our last question. We're coming to the end of our time, but I'll, I'll share it. It's, it's from Ceci. She, she wants, she again also congratulates you. Thanks for such an insightful, fabulous presentation. Could you speak a bit more about your chapter on Chateaubriand's reception in Latin America? How are you going to approach it or structure it? And who, and who are you going to discuss in that chapter? Um, so again, the chapter has um, a, a part on uh, Isaac's Maria. Um, and there I read both um, what it means for the protagonist to be reading Chateaubriand's Atala. Um, I look at uh, another rewriting of what's uh, within Chateaubriand's uh, novel, Les Natchez, there is a story of two um, African characters and that's picked up also by Azak, but the story is told very differently. It's one of liberation there. Um, when I look at, um, for instance, um, Heredia's, uh, there is also some really interesting uh, you know, the, 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 the falls of Niagara as they are described by the poetry of those um, early romantics um, is also, there's an interesting parallel there. Um, I think that the, the response is one of appropriation, but really one of um, trying, trying to, you know, I, I think I wanna try to show that that appropriation is, is um, a sort of retrofitting in a way, a fitting for those uh, struggles of uh, liberations. Thanks Fabienne for that answer. And thanks so much for this fascinating presentation and conversation. It's been a real pleasure. And I wanna thank everyone who joined us for joining us. Uh, I'm sure they agree with me. It was a real pleasure as well. Thanks so much. Thank uh, you to everyone. It's lovely to see you and um, can continue this conversation when we see in person. Thank you so much. Uh, I also want to let, uh, encourage you to join us a week from today. Uh, that's on February 26th at noon for our next work in progress talk, which is by Chris Seaman, assistant professor in the history of art and architecture, titled "Art and the Work in the Green Art and Work in the Greek Sculpture Industry." So that's a week from today at noon. Uh, for more information about the Oregon Humanities Center and our upcoming sponsored events, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, please go to ohc.uoregon.edu. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.